Good afternoon, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, my name is Doug. I am one of the pastors who's uh, very honored and blessed to be able to serve here at uh, Mosaic. Um, and I'm always so thankful to worship with you guys. Uh, can we turn to one another and just say Jesus loves you before we begin? Just turn to one another. It's good to see each other and say Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Yes, Jesus loves you. It's so important to be reminded of that. So today, Pastor Andre was scheduled to be preaching and resume our series in the book of Jeremiah. Unfortunately, he fell ill, and as a result, um, I ask that you would pray for him and Nita for their healing and recovery. So um, I was asked to cover for them um, on this past Thursday, and you know, I usually need about at least about a week, but I'm thankful that God had already placed a, a message in my heart uh, to share with you today. So the title of today's message is Live in the Garden. Can we say that to one another? Live in the Garden. Let's say it to each other. Live in the Garden. Live in the Garden. Live in the Garden. Okay? Now, as we begin, I want you to take a moment to think about uh, what have you been telling yourself that this is something that you absolutely need in order for you to be satisfied? What have you been telling yourself, like, I have to have that, or I have to have this person or that person, or I got to get into that in order for me to really be satisfied, in order for me to really be happy and content? What have you been telling yourself? And just hold on to that for a moment. Okay? Think about that. If I don't get that, I'm not going to be satisfied. I got to get that. So let's turn on our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. Genesis 3, verse 1 to 12. I know this is a very familiar passage to many of us who've been in the church. I'll begin. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. The word of God to us today. Please take a moment to look at that yourself. I always encourage you, try to picture the story. Try to place yourself there. And receive just greater meaning from being in the context of that story. So we're in Genesis 3, and it's important that we understand the context of any passage we read in Scripture. Right? So we can get a fuller picture of it. And it's also important that we take time to notice some of the details that are highlighted, that are given to us. So let me give you a little bit about the background, the context. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we know that it's the history of God's creation. 
On the sixth day, God creates man and woman in his image, in his likeness, and he places them in the garden. And as he places them in the garden, he gives them six positive commands. He says to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Take dominion over all the living creatures, and you shall eat from any or all the tree-bearing fruit, uh, tree-bearing fruit here. And it says that God saw all that he made, and it was very good. End of chapter 1. You can eat from all these things. Good. Very good. And then we come to chapter 2, and we see that God gives them only one negative command. Only one. You can eat from all the trees in the garden, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And so as we look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we can learn some things about God. First of all, God is the creator. He is the author of life. He is the designer. He is the one who intentioned his creation. He is also generous. Gloriously generous, providing for all the provisions and making sure that Adam and Eve have everything they need for human flourishing, blessing them and giving them these good commands. They lack nothing that they need in the garden with God. God is very good. And we see at the end of Genesis chapter 2 that Adam and Eve, they are united, they are one, they are naked, and they felt no Shame. There is no division between them. There is no obstacles between them. There is no hatred between them. They are united, naked, and felt no shame. It's very good. God created them and us to live in the garden with him. That's who he created us to be and where he created us to be. And then we come to Genesis chapter 3, and we are introduced to the serpent. I know there's going to be a lot of questions you know, revolving around this, but we can say that for another day, later day. But what we are told that the serpent in Revelation 12, 9, is, this, is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So Satan has come to deceive them. And here, as we see what Satan does, we learn something about his schemes. Because you and I, we need to live not unaware of his schemes because Satan is always scheming to pull us down and to destroy us. So let's see some of the things he does. First of all, he twists God's words. Satan twists God's words. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. Good, thank God that Eve actually knew what God said. No, no, we could eat from any tree, but from the tree in the midst of the garden, we shall not eat or touch, lest we die. Now, God didn't say you shouldn't touch it. And some people think maybe Eve just made that up. But I, I think, and that's possible, but I think it's Adam and Eve understanding the severity of the one negative comment, uh, command. They decided, you know what, let's, let's not only not eat it, just, let's just not go near it. Let's not touch it, lest we die. So the first thing Satan does is he twists God's word. And since it wasn't working on her, then he does the next thing. He attacks God's authority. He says, you shall not surely die. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. He tempts you to doubt and to test God's promises, God's word. 
God won't do anything to you. There won't be any consequences. And in essence, what he does is he belittles God's power. Now, when God's power and authority is decreased, then what power and authority is increased? Nature abhors a vacuum. When God's power and authority is not there, something else is going to come in. And this is what Satan does. He attacks God's authority. Third thing he does here we see is he defames God's character. He says to them, God knows that when you eat of it, you'll become a God. You'll become like him. He doesn't want competition. He's holding out on you. If God really loved you, then why is he not giving this to you? And what he does is as he defames God's character, he says to, begins to instill in them, you can't trust God. He doesn't really want your best. Otherwise, he would have given it to you. The fourth thing he does is he perverts their thinking to think that they can actually become God. And in becoming God, that they could determine their own course of life and set forth their own morality. You don't have to listen to what God says. You can become God. You can decide what happens in the garden. And so they are deceived to believe that they can actually live in God's garden, but without God's rule. I've heard it said like this before. Many people in the world, they want to get to heaven, but when they get there, they just don't want Jesus to be the ruler. And Satan deceives their thinking, perverts their thinking. And fifthly, he not only detracts them from their creative purpose, but he twists their desires. What did God create Adam and Eve like in his image? So they are created to want to be like God. Amen? That's what we're called to be, like God. And what did God create for them? Just delicious, beautiful, like, I mean, when we get to heaven, we're going to have the most mangoiest mangoes, if you know what I mean. Like, juices everywhere. And so God created Adam and Eve with these desires to enjoy beauty, enjoy goodness, to be in, become like Christ. But what happens? Satan twists that and turns the good desires into ungodly desires by saying, you should get it, but without God. You should get it for yourself. And what happens is they are now distracted from their purpose. Their purpose was what? To worship God, to love Him, and to love each other. Now their focus is what? They are distracted to the other. You need to have that. If you don't have this forbidden fruit, you're not complete. They need more than God and His words. That's the deception of Satan. Satan is the father of lies. Eve eats of it, and so does Adam, which results in the great fall, the fall of man. Now think about this deception. Think about this mindset, this worldview. Isn't it the exact same struggle that humanity continues to get swept up in constantly since the fall? Isn't this what we all face? You don't have enough. Get more. You will never be enough unless you get that other thing, unless you get that other person, unless you get that experience, unless you get that job. Only then will you be fully satisfied and complete. You're not complete unless you get that. God's holding out on you. You're entitled to it. You deserve it. You use all your energy to go and get it. Satan lies and he entices them. In essence, what he's doing to Adam and Eve is saying this, don't look at God and all that God's given to you. Look at, rather, what God hasn't given to you. 
Don't look at God and all that God has given to you. Rather, look at that one thing God hasn't given to you. And as a result of this, as a result of listening to the lie of the enemy, there is damning results, a fallout to this lie, believing this lie and disobeying God's command. I'm going to just highlight three of them. Number one is, first of all, they have a twisted and dissatisfied view of themselves now. They see themselves naked and they are ashamed of their nakedness and they try to cover up with their fig leaves. Now, I want you all to do this, okay? I'm not going to tell you to go cover your private, but just go like this, go like this. Not, not like this. No, don't do that. Like this. Okay? Like this. This is what Adam and Eve are doing. Before they were this, now they are this. Now don't look, don't look at me. Don't, don't ask of me. Don't take anything from me. My, me, me. That which they thought, this fruit, would give them more life apart from God, actually leaves them naked and pitiful. They are full but not of life. They are now full of death. The pleasures of sin, the pleasures of the things of this world only last for a season. Second thing you notice of the result of, the, of their disobedience and believing the lie is they are now separated from God. They are at enmity with God. They are afraid God's footsteps are coming in and they hide. Before, when they would hear God's footsteps, they would run. Our father's here. He <laughs> run, dance, talk, play. Oh, this is what we did today, Father. And it would be such a glorious time. But now they are hiding. Now they are not excited to see their creator. In their, in their mind, their thoughts, it's almost as if better, it would be better if God isn't involved in my affairs. They would rather hide in the dark than come out to the light. We will cover up our failures and our own shame with our own effort. This is what they're doing. Thirdly, the result is they have now a twisted and derogatory view of God and their beloved. Has God changed? When he walks into the garden, has he changed? No. He's the exact same good God who created them and gave them everything. The same good father, loving father who wants to be with them and comes to them. But Adam and Eve now see God differently. Adam actually blames God for the consequences of his sins. He says, this woman whom you put here. When, when God says, did you eat of the fruit? Adam should have been like, yes. Instead he goes, this woman you put here. And then he begins to complain about his wife. She gave it to me. And I ate. In other words, she's just a dead weight to me. She's pulling me down. What have you done for me lately? And this is what happens. All because they believed the lie that God wasn't enough. And they are not enough in God. The lie that unless they had the other, unless they have that, they will not be complete. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, what lie are you believing and living out? What lie is it? Is it that you need more to be complete? Is it a lie that God is not really loving and a good God because he didn't give you what you want? Oh, Pastor Doug, I've been praying for this for so, and God has not given it to me yet. He is not a good God. Is it that uh, the lie that God with you is not enough? Like, I'm not enough. If just God loves me, I have to get this and this, and then I will be enough. What lie are you living? 
are you seeking after? What are you living out? Adam and Eve, they are cast out of the garden. You can continue to read Genesis 3. Now Adam will have to toil by the sweat of his brow for food. But in the garden with God, God had provided for all they need. They didn't have to worry about tomorrow. All they had to do was rejoice and enjoy each other and God in the present with all his provisions and they would have walked into the future with God. But now, what is going on in the world we live in? Everyone panicking, worrying, stressing, striving for a future, anxious. Not only did Adam and Eve fall, all of humanity suffers under that constant poison of this twisted worldview. I need more. I need more. I got to get more. But here's the thing. We can actually say praise be to God. Because God has not stopped loving us. Amen. God has not stopped warning us to be in the garden with him. Amen. He so loved us that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ. And I want us to turn to Matthew 3, verse 16, and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 4. So we're going to read a bit of passage, but it's necessary so that you could see what happens, what Jesus does. Matthew 3, 16, as Jesus is about to begin his public ministry, says this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Just, oh, just God and his divine trinity all there, glorified, right? And then verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Why was Jesus led out to the wilderness? You know, the wilderness represents lack, represents famine, barrenness, struggle, oppression, sweat, hardship. It was in the wilderness for 40 years where Israel continually tested and complained against God. Where was Adam and Eve cast out from? They were cast out from the garden into the wilderness. Jesus willingly left the garden and came into the wilderness because the wilderness is where we are at. Jesus willingly left his eternal throne and came to the wilderness because that's where we are at. With all our thirsting, with all our hunger, 
with all our emptiness, with all our exhausting pursuit for more. He came to rescue us and fill us with his life. Brothers and sisters, aren't you exhausted? Aren't you exhausted by running after that other, that other, that other, that other? That unquenchable thirst that's in your heart that you're trying to find in a girl or in a guy or in a job or in a career or in a certain amount of money. Aren't you exhausted by it? Jesus came into our wilderness and he literally was famished. 40 days he didn't eat. And he shows us in his life, like unlike the first Adam who had the fullness, the garden, Unlike the first Adam, Jesus did not believe the lie or give in to the lie of Satan and this fallen worldview. He showed us, though he had no extra clothes, though he had no roof over his head, though he had no food, though he had nothing, what it looks like to be satisfied, what it looks like to be full, to be content, peace, love, godly life, what it looks like, what it is. When Satan says, if you're the son of God, come on, if, if God loves you, why are you starving? Use your power, turn the stone into bread. You need this other. And Jesus says, no. Man does not live by bread alone. But every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he says, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is what I have and is what I need. It's not the other. Satan goes, okay, then I'm going to take you up to the pinnacle of the Jerusalem temple where the crowds are, and then you jump. If you're the son of God, you jump, and the angels will come and pick you up. If God really loves you, he wants you to have fame. He wants people to recognize your glory. Come on. If God really loves you, do it. And Jesus says, I don't need to test my father. He is good. And I put my trust in him. And he goes, okay, fine, fine. So he takes them up to the, the highest peak, a mountain. Shows them all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, I will give this to you if you just worship me. You don't have to go through any difficulties. You don't have to go. I'll give this to you. Now, please understand this. Jesus wants the kingdoms of this world. This is why he came. For the hearts and the souls of people to redeem them. But he says, I will not Sell my soul to you. I will not worship you, Satan. Rather, I will worship the Lord God alone, and him only shall I serve. And I know that this is the desire God's given to me, but I'm going to do it the way God wants me to do it, in obedience to him. And so he doesn't allow Satan to twist his calling or his meaning, his purpose. And he outshines. He outshines. He walks in this complete love for the Father, Father, whatever you say, I will do. Whatever you say. So what happens? So Jesus is in the wilderness, but he's actually bringing the garden. He's obedient to the point of death on the cross. Three days later, you know what happens after he's buried in the tomb. We celebrated it last week. He rose again from the dead. He has literally overturned what Adam, the first Adam, failed to do. He opened the path, the way to the garden of life now for you and me. Brothers and sisters, if God sending his only begotten son to you, if Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, giving his life on the cross, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of your sins, if that is not enough for you to be satisfied, to find your deepest contentment, believe me, nothing else in this world will. 
You can choose to continue to run around exhausting yourself in the wilderness in the pursuit of more. But Jesus invites you to be with him in the garden and have life abundantly. Have life abundantly. Would you welcome him to be your Savior and your Lord? Would you ask him to forgive you of your sins? Would you ask him to reorient your priorities, your affections to him first and foremost? Now, what I want to do is this. I just want to do uh, quickly three, four things from the life of Jesus, the true Adam, that I believe you and I, we can implement starting today so that we can also live in contentment, in peace, in love, in Christ-likeness. And I'm going to go to the first three very quickly. Number one, we know this. Morning, evening, afternoon, Jesus always went away to spend time with the Father. Even when he was busy, he was always with the Father. How are we going to find contentment? We need to be with the one who is truly the contentment. Be with God. Number two, give thanks. Jesus is always giving thanks. When he multiplies the fish and the loaves, when he breaks the bread and pours the wine, he's always giving thanks. The enemy would have us not look at what God has done, what God has given, but look at what we don't have. And as a result, it ends in envy. It ends in lust. It ends in selfishness. But when we give thanks, it reminds us, oh boy, we truly are loved and blessed by God. Give thanks. Number three, set time with other believers. Jesus didn't do ministry on his own. He always had disciples around him. He did ministry together. And not only that, but he would encourage each other to live out God's purpose for their life. Not live out your purpose in your own ways, but live out God's purposes in God's ways. And they would encourage each other to do that. That's so important that we have that brotherhood, that sisterhood. And lastly, something that God spoke to me this past week. When you sense there is an anxiousness inside of you, when you sense that there is a fear welling up, a bitterness, a lust, a loneliness, a depression, when you sense that, let that be like a prompt to go to God. And when you let that be a prompt, you can go to God and you can say, God, thank you for the Holy Spirit making me aware that something is off inside of me. Don't let it be something that pulls you away from God because that's what the shame did with Adam and Eve. They pulled away instead of going to the one that could actually set them free. When you sense something is off inside of you, let that be a prompt to go to God. So remember what I asked you guys to do before you were like this, right? I'm going to do this. Now you feel the anxiousness. You feel that selfishness. You feel that loneliness. You feel that lust, whatever it may be. Now I want you guys to do this. Do this with me. Come on. Go to God, okay? Go to God. Uh, you, hopefully you remember that part. Go to God and say, thank you, God. You're making me aware of this. And this is the thing. When you go to God, you don't have to say, oh, God, I feel this. Get rid of it. Because then you start to use God to get rid of something. Instead, what you do is you go to God and goes, God, I'm aware that I'm feeling this, this feeling, this loneliness, this anxiousness. But my, my focus is not that. I realize that you have become dimmer to me. You have become hazy to me because if I recognize how great you are, how majestic, how powerful you are, why would I let this have any rule in my life? And so as you come to know God, what does God do? He gives you his peace, which transcends all understanding. He gives you wisdom and he guides you so you may be able to walk in the fullness. Now, think about Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he also felt this anxiousness, this anxiety. But what did he do? He went to the Father. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. 
He felt that pain, that anguish, that anxiety, but he didn't run from God. He brought it to God, and God gave him his strength. You see, Jesus' life is not enslaved to self-preservation and self-accumulation. He's free to give all of himself. And in so doing, he spreads the garden, the reality of God's presence everywhere to all those around him. Now, I know I'm a little bit long, but I'm going to say this part because I feel like I left out the first service. Does that mean then that we should just focus on God and just sit on our butts and just pray all day and be like a hermit and just, oh, God, 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 God? Maybe, maybe for some of you that's necessary. But what does God say? What does Jesus say? I'm going to close with this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says this. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your father, Heavenly Father need, feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? Let's just stop right there. See, Jesus already knows that this is what's, that's what's on our hearts. He already knows that this is our struggle. He knows it. So he's telling us, do not be anxious. Rather, instead of focusing on what you want, what you desire, focus on something else. He says this. Verse 32, jump down. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will add to you second, third, fourth priority in his glory, in his timing, in his purpose. But you seek God first. This is a well-ordered priority life of a follower of Christ, seeking God first, and then God's life flowing in us and through us. Brothers and sisters, if God the Father loving you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins, and the Holy Spirit given to us to be with us for eternity is not enough to satisfy you, to give you the greatest contentment, greatest feeling of completion in that sense, then nothing else in this world ever will. But here's the promise. If you know he is and you walk in that, then what happens? You bring life into your relationships. You bring life into your work. You bring meaning into the things that you do instead of trying to derive meaning from them because God has already given you your meaning, your identity, your calling, your purpose, your completeness in him. Let's pray together. Brothers and sisters, let us live in the garden with the Lord and I pray that your heart's desire would say, yes, Lord, each and every moment of the day.